Uh, you probably recognize my opposite number in the KGB, General Gogol. And I believe you're familiar with Major Amazova. Enough to know which brand of cigarette she smokes. Continuing our James Bond, a survey of all Bond films, we've now come to The Spy Who Loved Me. And I have a question, if I could start with a question for you. Yes. You said to me that we were likely to have a massive disagreement about this film. And so I want to know what you think I would make of it. What, what, what did you think I was going to say? I think you probably quite like it. And I think you probably quite like Barbara Bach. Well, um, you're right about Barbara Bach, so well, <laughs> you know me so well. <laughs> yeah, I went for the, the shallowest point. Yeah. Um, but did yeah. you like the film? I found it a real grueling slog. It does have some Excellent. redeeming features and they come in unexpected directions. Uh, well, a couple of global comments. Never watch a James Bond film in which Bond wears flares. I think it's probably a good dictum to live by. <laughs> And my other one is, nobody wants to see Roger Moore take his clothes off. Well, we've already had that in View to a Kill. I'd rather he took his clothes off in 1977 than 1985. Yeah. <laughs> um, but Spy Who Loved Me is a film I've never liked. And I thought, on a rewatch, I would quite like it. But it, I actually think I like it less because I'm just looking at too many problems in it. And it's all... Uh, it's all about appearances. It's all visual. There's no substance to it. Look, it's not. It's it's a very weak Bond film. I was surprised because I, I think I, I thought I'd seen all the Bonds as they came out, but I wondered if I'd ever seen this one. The only bit I remembered, which I'm sure I'd just seen out of context, is the uh, ski sequence at the beginning, which ends with the guy parachuting over the chasm, and it, mm. this, the Union Jack uh, parachute comes out. I'm sure I'd just seen a clip of that. None of the rest of it had any memories for me at all. So I'm, maybe this was the first time seeing it. It was not a fun watch. No. Um, it's the film that I remember most from my childhood as always being on TV. Because there were nearly always Bond films on, but it just seemed to be this one over and over again. So there's a lot that I know from it. And I used to have uh, a toy, a little Lotus James Bond toy, which you press the back and the fins flip out and it transforms into a little sub. And I loved that. And I thought that that, you know, in the film might be a great thing, but it's really not. It's it's almost painful. But don't you have a problem that you fall asleep whenever there's an underwater sequence? That is a major issue, and there's also too many really, really bad miniature effects in this, Ooh. which pull you out of the film Something every to, to time. disagree about, because I thought, is this Derek Meddings? Is that the name of the guy who does oh, miniatures? Yeah. It's just terrible. Everything looks like Thunderbirds. It's all out of scale. It's all slightly out okay. of focus. Well, it's we'll, we'll get stuff. to that, because I thought some of the miniature work was good. But... I'm not. I'm not up for defending this film. I'm not up for a battle royale like we had over what was it? Oh, uh, the world is not enough. Yeah. Uh, so, in this one, I think Barbara Bach looks great. I'm not really sure she's going to act much at all. She does have a, a really good character because at least 
She's got agency. In fact, she's got secret agency because she's a Russian spy. So she's not just a dolly bird. But all of which is not to say she's, she's not a great Bond girl because we've seen Goldeneye. And in <laughs> that, you had a Bond girl who looked fabulous, but she could really act. And she'd been given something to do with the character. So by the, the standards of, you're going to name the actress for me now. Barbara Bach? No. Oh, uh, oh um, Isabella Skropko. By the standards of Isabella Skropko, most Bond girls pale and uh, Barbara Bach or pretty much disappears. Let, let's let Diana Rigg have the crown for your we, ideal Bond we girl. We need to re-see that one because I'm sure oh, you're definitely. right about that. I, I have great memories of that film, but I haven't seen it for yonks. So on um, Majesty's Secret <clears throat> Service, we need to go back to that. So Barbara Bach, I thought she looks great. I love the fact that she's a Russian spy. There's a bit where she's attacked by Jaws and uh -huh. she actually fights back. So she's not a passive dolly, but all that's to the good. But... This is, look, the problem with Bond movies is rapidly becoming apparent. The standard problem is that you get all, the, all these, you get a string of set pieces for about an hour and a half before the story kicks in, right? Is that true to say? It is. I mean, our major problem with this one is this is the first film which isn't, well, I mean, it's, it's based on the title of an Ian Fleming book, but it has, Fleming made Good it very point. clear he didn't want this made into a film. It has book. no relation. Do you want to briefly tell the folks at home what the novel the Spy Who Loved Me is about. What? It's, it's told from... Uh, now, I'm trying to remember Spy Who Loved Me. It's the one that's told from the point of view of the female spy, isn't it? For and about it's, the it's first in a motel, I think, quarters. in Canada? <laughs> yeah, honestly, my memory is so hazy because well, it's I'll a book I read least. So it's, it's about this young woman. It's about her life, her loves, her affairs. She ends up at a motel where these gangsters turn up, uh, I think quite arbitrarily and coincidentally, and similarly arbitrarily and coincidentally she is rescued by bond so that's yeah. so it's a really unusual bond novel and when we do our bond novel podcast i'm sure we're gonna have lots to say about <laughs> it but what we can say here is that it has a title aside it has nothing to do with the film whatsoever now the problem is and i think the main problem with this film is barbara bark okay i think if there was a better actress in that role it would be a better film because she's so passive throughout she's just Blank-eyed. But the, the, and, it's a, that's, it, I'm sure you're right about Barbara Bach not being a great actress, but I'm sorry, Barbara. But uh, that's a script problem. She isn't given anything to do. No, I don't buy that. I think I think it's there in the writing. The problem is is that she just seems totally disinterested in everything around give her. Give me an example. Well, let me give you a, a counter-proposal here. Is this is nineteen seventy seven? This was made, and I was trying to think of an actress who could have been better in that role and made a better film. So I went straight to Helen Mirren. If you'd have put Helen Mirren in that film as the Russian agent, a better actress, then you have that. There's a scene where um, she asks Bond, "Did you kill my boyfriend?" Ah, yes. What you're saying is, she, it's, it's, if somebody was actually acting in that scene, yes, yeah, it would give Roger Moore more to work with because you know, as it stands, he's up against it in this film. I feel so sorry for him. He's got Richard Keel on one side. Oh, God. He's got um, we'll get to him Kurt Bloody Jurgens, who's just I awful. know. You're not wrong. Uh, yeah, what's it, what can a guy do? He's got the, he's actually only upstaged once in this film, and that is by Carolyn Munro's wink. Beyond <laughs> that, there is nothing else standing in his way. He's had to carry the lot, and I feel really sorry well, for him. Well, we're really because... just laying on Barbara Bach. It has to be said, I think she looks magnificent. But the problem that's not is, is it's just not enough. She is the co-star, and yeah, that's if true. the co-star needs to co-lead, 
You can't just sit back and hope it goes no, look, well. Look, listen, Isabella Skropko, once you say that, it, all the problems are thrown into sharp relief as soon as we take that example. But look, she's not, you know, um, what, what's the name of her character? It's Triple uh, X. She's called Naomi. Major. She's called no, Major. No, it's not, sorry. She's Major Anya, something or Triple X. Amasova. Major Anya Amasova. Anya. And it's not badly written. No. There's plenty for her to do, but she doesn't do anything with it. She's so frustrating. Her eyes express nothing. And it she's boring on screen. She may be very attractive. You know, she's got very nice eyes. She's great in other... We've seen her in other films. We, I mean, you were complaining that she wasn't in... Uh, what was that Frank O'Neill on? Uh, Is this an Italian movie? Street Law. Yes. Um, that she wasn't, in street, wasn't used enough in Street Law. But look what happens when she is. <laughs> Well, well, I'm sure I probably we have said no that idea. at the time. We have no idea of the, the, <laughs> the context of this. Maybe she was capable of greatness and needed a better director than Lewis Gilbert, right? Well, I think possibly, but also I would blame the Broccolis as well in that for them it's never really about character or anything else. It's all about How did Isabella Skropko get under the radar then? In uh, Goldeneye. Because it was a massive reboot. Um, ah. Goldeneye was like the rebirth of Bond, so they had their new female M, they rewrote Bond a bit, they... They basically focused on motivation. They were more open to a proper character. Yeah. And a great um, actress, without question. She was marvellous. So everybody go watch Goldeneye instead of this. Okay, that's enough of this podcast. Uh, see you next <laughs> time. for No, we've got some more work to do. Let's go, let's go back this. to the beginning. What, what do you think about the title song? I love it. I love it. I, th I think it's a great song. Uh, it doesn't have much to do with anything, but it's a yeah. great song sung brilliantly by Carly Simon. The music is by Marvin Hamlin. She did the music hmm. for this and I, I don't like the music for this. I like the song. I don't like the score. Hamlish is hard work. Um, there are moments I really, really like, but the synth stuff doesn't work at all. It's got this dated disco-y sound. Yeah. And the the only bits I liked were when he was either aping John Barry or literally using the Barry or Monty Norman material. Yes. Um, now, I'm, am I misremembering? Hamlish did uh, For Your Eyes Only as well, didn't he? I believe this is the only one he did, but I'm willing to be proved wrong, but I'm pretty damn sure this is the only one he did. We'll have to quickly look that up, up, so fill in. While you're looking it up, I want to just give a, a, a sort of caveat that I, I really like Marvin Hamish. I've got other stuff by him, which is great, but he's not the man to do a James Bond score. Although, on the evidence here, he's absolutely the man to do a James Bond theme song, because this is one of the best Bond theme songs. It's, uh, as I say, music by Hamish, sung by um, Carly Simon, lyrics by Carol Bayer Sager. And I love it. I just love it. And what? he... Why are you still he? looking up? Still looking up? Oh, well, it's just... I mean, I made the mistake of using IMDb. I Bill Conti. Bill Conti, because I like the music. And I was quite confused, because no. I know I like Fiora's Only. Yeah. And couldn't work out... This is his only one, wrong correct. Thing. Hamlish. Yeah. yeah. And so, Hamlish, good, but not as a Bond composer. It's a dodgy score. It's, it's another mark against the film. What did you think of the Maurice Binder titles? He's the guy who does the title sequence. Yeah, yeah, I know. Uh, no, I'm I, telling viewers at home, <laughs> listeners at home. Yeah, yeah, I know. I'm going to be... Honestly, I can't actually remember it. And what's interesting is there's an episode of Alan Partridge where Alan is hopped up on Sunny D and he's <laughs> reenacting the whole opening of Spy Who Loved Me. And I know that word for word and I still can't think what the title is. So the title like, sequence... The, 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 the thing that, Yes, trampoline. Yeah. And, and there's actually some nudity in it, perhaps for the first time ever. There's actually some... Because there's always a teasing suggestion of nudity but you can actually see there's some nudity in this it's pretty good it's not the greatest ever it's also shot in blue with kind of searchlights coming down and trampolining and, and athletics and it's it's not bad but it's not one of his best ever 
it didn't have a huge impact on me. But there, that's not to say there's not nice stuff in this film. There, there are good things in there. Um, they're just well hidden. I, I really I... like Bond in uniform. Well, okay, now I want to say a bit about Roger Moore, who I'm scathing about mostly, and I've already mentioned his flares and never take off your clothes, Roger, even even with your wife, ever. All right. So this is being a bit cruel to him, but he actually looks really good as Bond in this. There's a bit in the big shootout where he's in naval uniform with a machine gun and it uh, jams or he runs out of ammo. And he just looks like a guy who's really in a shootout whose gun isn't working. He's convincing. <laughs> he looks great. He, You can see why people would want him as Bond because he... He does have the look. I'll give him that. He was a perfect choice for Bond. He was a very good choice. The trouble was he hung around too long. And people only remember you for the tail end of what you did rather than the glory is. Is this the tail end? No, that's the tragic thing. But this, I mean, you've got quite a way to go yet. I mean, For Your Eyes Only is the penultimate one, and I think he looks great in that. So It's just for you to a kill that's the problem. What... What number more Bond is his, his third one, perhaps? I mean, he did yeah, Live and Let be. Die. Uh, then Man with the Golden Gun, then Spy Love Me. So, yeah. 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 And then you've got, what, Octopussy after that? Probably so I've got my objections yeah. to, to Moore's Bond whenever he opens his mouth, but he does look really good in this. So that good more power to him. With his clothes on and not with flares on. Those are my caveats, <laughs> OK? And again, Desmond Llewellyn, who usually is sold short in these films, I actually think comes across quite dignified in this one. Uh, okay, well, I, I'm going to quiz... I'm afraid I'm going to have to interrogate Matt about that because one of the crazy well, things about this movie is it spends a long time in Egypt. Presumably they've got a deal to shoot there. So when we have our conventional sequence with Bond seeing M, Money, yes. Penny and Q, it takes place in a pyramid. I'm not, Look, I'm not on acid. I'm not lying. It takes Not only place, that, yes? it has a decapitating flying carpet. I know, it's got a guy smoking a hookah which turns out to be a machine gun. All the yeah. usual dumb tropes of the Bond back at headquarters are performed here inside a specially designed pyramid. It's completely bonkers. Andrew, let me be clear on this, and this isn't going to work very well visually, but on this page it says, Llewellyn much more dignified. On this page it says, Q indignity restored. <laughs> so his first scene is great, his second scene is not What was it about so his great. first scene that you liked then? I've got a clue, mate. I watched this about two months ago. <laughs> I, can't it, I mean, it's all the whole, this, all this stuff. It's just when I say it's bonkers, it's not bonkers in a good way. It's just completely. I remember what it was. It's, the, it's just the meeting that Bond has with uh, M and Q's just in the room with them, just chatting the shit. And it's just nice that he's involved in that, and he's just giving a bit of techno. It could not feedback. be the bit where he delivers the car then. No, that's much later. Yeah, it, it is much later. Thanks. So this, but this is all in the section of the Bond film which I'm beginning to see in most Bond movies, is disposable. They're like these rocket ships that, you know, they drop off sections uh, as they move. Finally, you get to the capsule, which is the good bit. And that bit is usually a bit with some story. Now, I wanted to draw a comparison again with Goldeneye. And this is one of the strengths of this film. As much as you dislike Barbara Bach, Bond is actually, <laughs> there is a story that begins at the beginning, which, as in Goldeneye, it, it didn't, I've written here, it, in, there's, it's immediately similar to Goldeneye because Bond's story intertwines with that of a Russian woman that we see from the start. And that's, well, that, that is one of the strengths. Although you don't like, they don't do much with her and you don't like Barbara Bach, at least it does have that. My memory's hazy, but I think Christopher Wood novelised this, the I'm, film. Almost certainly, because Christopher Wood, the screenplay, folks, is by Christopher Wood and Richard Maybaum. 
And I think Christopher Wood's novelisation is very different to the film, but I haven't read it since probably the early 90s. And I think it's based on a first draft that he that would, would have preferred sense, to have done. Yeah. And I think probably a lot of my memory of her character and how well written it is is based on that. And I think the intertwining of the two stories was better worked out in that. Now, I may be way off grid here, but... No, I, need to reread it. I think because that would make it more like Goldeneye. What, what happens in Goldeneye is they <laughs> took this basic idea and did it much better. Yeah. Well, it's it's that difficult thing you've got. That you've got a two-hour film. Um, it, must have been, this, it must have been more than two hours. It just went on forever. It, well, it's about 2.10, I think. But yeah, it does drag. Um, it's kind of like, and I don't want to keep going back to Doctor Who as a comparison, but they used to do <laughs> six-parters. And the trouble with six-parters yes. is that you've got a weekly story so that's a month and a half and you've just got to fill six episodes of crap yeah and what a couple of very clever writers used to do was to write a four-parter and a two-parter or two-parter and four-parter so you'd start in one location for two parts and then do another part for four parts it's the same with a two-hour film like this if you can break it into two stories then whichever one isn't working the other one can you can cut away or something yeah but there's nothing to cut away to with this really um, all you get is her having meetings with her bosses. It just trudges. It just trudges. So the way that what happens is we mentioned the ski sequence at the beginning, and that involves Bond slaughtering a bunch of enemy agents. We set up the fact that the introduction of Barbara Box is quite clever because we have these Kremlin high types saying, oh, we must get Agent XXX on the case immediately. And we cut to this very hairy Russian bloke in bed with this gorgeous girl. And we think that the hairy bloke is going to be Agent XXX, and it turns out to be her. Good gag. Yeah. Works well. And it is, and the idea of teaming Bond up with someone whose husband he's killed yeah. is brilliant. So just just think... to conclude the hairy bloke anecdote, Sorry. that guy does feed into the story because he then beca- he says, "I'm off to Austria to, to be killed by James Bond." He doesn't say the last bit, but that's what happens. So that's all set up nicely, which pays off later on. Sorry, but what were you saying? No, no, at all. I, I just I think that's a really good idea. They just don't make enough they of don't. it. They absolutely don't. Because what happens is she's nominally involved in the movie but it's just a bunch of dumb set pieces but do you think they would have made enough more of it if they had a better actress i i would say no because i think this was probably locked down at script stage and they wouldn't have known exactly her capabilities at that stage so i don't think they would have given anybody a bigger chance by the way your helen mirren idea is kind of great because she'd play a russian really convincingly yeah i think she would have been perfect for this especially in 77 yeah um, i you know just at the height of her allure. I mean, maybe she is not the kind of thing she would have done. I doubt they even bothered asking her because I know that they would have well, preferred she's to use cheap. a conventional beauty. And so, whereas Barbara Bark is, so they probably never would have considered it. But that, that's a really good idea, Matt. Bark doesn't do much with the idea of being the, uh, the, the anti-Bond or the, the, the Bond opposite. She doesn't feel like a secret agent at any point. And when she's in fight sequences, she doesn't throw herself into it. She's not still enough. very At least she makes an it. attempt. It's not, she doesn't she just d- stand there, though. No, absolutely. It's written that way. That's, that's, that's nice, is that they give her something to do, but um, she, she does nothing with it, and it's so frustrating. Can I ask? Um, yes. Is this the first Jaws movie? Um, yeah, Moonraker is the other one, isn't it? Um, now, I've got, this is my big issue with Bond films, modern Bond films, is the, uh, the, the Batman-style henchman which make no sense. And so Jaws by henchman you mean no the, the, bad, the bad guy's assistant? Yeah. And Jaws makes no sense at all. 
It's like, one of the worst things I ever come I've up never, with. I've never... So Jaws, for people who don't know, he is played by Richard Keel. He's this really big, tall guy, a, a powerful-looking bad guy, and he's got metal teeth, and he, his gag is that he bites people to death. And it's just... The whole thing is just... And Jaws was a big, hot movie, I don't know, sometime around this time, so they called him Jaws. The whole thing is dreadful. <laughs> it is, and but it's what Bond's known for, and this is what happened with... Uh, world is not a blood enough is that they had goldie in it and in their pre-publicity stuff they were trying to sell him as the son of jaws which made no sense why he would have teeth as well gold teeth or whatever but, but he, he doesn't do much in that movie at all it does no nothing he doesn't at all remember, yeah. I, I think he ended up on the cutting room floor for the most part um but jaws in this does things like he bites a chain in half for no reason oh, look it's just he it's... on the on the on the train fight, which is a great fight, because it, but it's just copying the one from Diamonds Are Forever uh, in the lift. No, again. well, allow me. I've written that it's just copying the one, the other train fight from Russia with Love. Yeah, I forgot about that. One. Yeah, <laughs> literally a fight on a train. So what I liked about this was that that um, Barbara Bach fights back. But I what I hated about it was that it's Jaws and that it's a ripoff of From Russia with Love. Yeah. Well, it's Robert um, Shaw, isn't it? Robert Shaw versus Connery, I believe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've completely forgotten about that. And I love From Russia with Love. I haven't seen it in a well, long time. Well, we've got to watch that one soon. So mm. I'm very disappointed because I count on you as my Bond expert. So the fact that I had to point this out is, to listeners at home, it's very disappointing. There are some films that I won't watch often because I like them. Um, otherwise, you end up overwatching them and you don't enjoy them as much. Same goes for albums, same goes for books. Yeah, you, you shouldn't read them too often. The only exceptions to the rule are um, Umbrellas of Sherbrooke and The Breakfast Club. I'll watch those anytime, anytime. <laughs> um, another good thing going for this film is an incredible guest cast, and not um, the, like the not main Kurt guest Jurgens. cast. No, we're talking about the tiny little one-word roles. Uh, you've just got some absolutely fantastic people in this. I wrote down uh, Nadim Sawala, Cyril Shapps. Um, you've got Jeremy Bullock, Edward D'Souza. I mean, they, they just keep coming and they, they've all got maybe one line each, but they are such quality actors and I love seeing them all in one film like this. Most of them would go on to, you know, head things up themselves at various stages. But and it's great, this, it's great got... that they got a decent payday because they would have got a decent payday for this an act who should be paid well. <laughs> You'd hope, wouldn't you? Um, the, the other thing that sticks with me and it stuck with me since childhood is I used to find the pyramid sequence terrifying um, with all the pyramids lit up and the voice. Terrifyingly watching... boring. Well, as a kid, it was scary because it was the synth that was just pounding away. And now I watch it, and I can't work out if the synth is meant to be part of the show so what the presentation is or whether it's a, meant to be the soundtrack. There's a Son Lumiere show going on at the pyramids, which they do do, and all these people are sitting watching it, and Barbara Bach is there with some dude that Bond's trailing, and there's a fight, and there's a bunch of stuff happens. That's what Matt's talking about. Yeah. Bunch of stuff um, happens. That summarises the beginning of most of these <laughs> Bond movies. Also, it also sums up, just to take a U-turn here, um, the entire Harry Potter franchise, a bunch of stuff happens. You know, just... I don't like bunch of stuff happens. I like well-structured scripts. What I've also written here is, I don't know why they just don't shoot Jaws, like in Raiders of the Lost Ark when he shoots that guy with the sword. Just shoot him. Then it's done. Thank God it's over. No more Jaws. But the brilliant thing about the Raiders thing is that it doesn't matter how many writers you've got, it still took an actor yes. having a shit day to come up with that solution. It's true, it's true. 
Harrison um, Ford did say, why don't we just shoot the fucker? Yeah. <laughs> and I think it's because writers, when they're writing, think, I don't want to make the actor look shit. Let's give them something to do. Big it up. But Yeah, but all it takes is an actor to say, do you know what? This would be a lot better if. <laughs> if only Roger Moore had said that about Jaws. I mean, but you see, even oh. we, at the end, when James Bond is going to return, even Jaws bloody pops up from the underwater to tell us that he'll be back. Oh, please, don't say it isn't so. The thing with Roger Moore is that he did care, but all too often he was up against it with the, the Broccoli's, to whom he was quite grateful, obviously. And I don't know if you've ever read his uh, Live and Let Die making of book. No. But a contemporary with the film, he released a little paperback, which was his uh, diary, as it were, throughout the making of the film. And it's a very interesting book to read because most of the things that he wants to do, he doesn't really end up doing in the later films. And he has plans that fall by the way, and he just basically plays ball. But he does stand up for himself quite a lot. Uh, it's definitely worth getting hold of. Oh yeah, it's called my. I think it's called my life is bond. No, no, I can't remember what it's called. Well, that's it's my called birthday present die. sorted out. My birthday's in a it, few weeks' time. Basically, it looks like a little black pan paperback um, of Live and Let Die, so it's easy to miss on a shelf. But it, it's Bond uh, Roger Moore, as I say, the author. Birthday coming up. Yeah, I don't think I've got a spare, so you can forget that. Oh, bless you. Um, um, <clears throat> now I wanted to talk briefly about the plot. Insofar as there is one, the yes. plot arc is about submarines. It's about submarines being uh, stolen. They disappear, both, of, and that this is how we get oh. the Russian. We have a Russian agent and a British agent because a British sub and a Russian sub. Actually, it's an American sub, isn't it? American sub, and uh, a Russian sub have both been stolen nuclear submarines. And uh, the thing I liked about this is it's almost really topical because they. The point about nuclear submarines is they're supposed to be undetectable, so you have your nuclear launch capability. To destroy the enemy and the rest of the world, it has to be said. Uh, quick CND lecture here. Uh, and the, they're supposed to be untraceable, but somebody could trace these submarines, and this is by their heat signature. That's what it is in this film. Now, just I want to take a little detour here because, and I, you know, we may end up having this podcast removed under the Official Secrets Act, but the thing is, it turns out that there's this thing called fossil cavitation uh, or. Um, fossil uh, what it is what it means is that when you go you're in your submarine and you've got uh, your propeller uh, and it it's you're moving through the water even ages after you've passed fossil turbulence fossil turbulence of fossil cavitation there's tiny traces in the water which can be detected so you can trace nuclear submarines really easily if you're the russians because they worked this out about 10 years ago and then the Americans got wind of it. So the Americans have been putting these bafflers on their submarines because what you do is you attach stuff to the propellers to stop this happening. But the Brits have never done that. And the, Britain's nuclear uh, deterrent, what I call its nuclear Armageddon capability, its nuclear genocide capability, is all based on the idea that nobody knows where these subs are. The fact is the Russians and probably the Americans know where these subs are all the time. And uh, our, in other words, Britain's nuclear defence strategy no longer exists it just doesn't work so i thought about that a bit because that's what this movie is about anyway so are you kissing you blowing kisses <laughs> at your cat yeah much more okay. interesting than this but i, I, I was reading about this not in, you i was no you turned your head away and i'm sure the cat's well worth a kiss you're gonna have to turn the camera around but uh, i was reading about this in new scientist so this is a really kind of hot topic at the moment which isn't hasn't even broken through to public consciousness so in a way this was 
very prescient in this film, even though it was heat signatures instead of fossil turbulence, which is being used to trace the, uh, the subs. Well, it's curious that you bring up Stromberg's plan because my second to last paragraph of notes after four pages is Stromberg finally has a plan. Um, but what I couldn't understand was why he waited. Why not just do it straight away? Isn't that the classic thing of why the bad guy... It's like, it's, it, it is writ large, the version of why does the bad guy spend time gloating instead of just killing the good guy? And also, his plan is to kill everyone, if memory serves. His um, idea is he's going to create a new world under the sea. Yes. And there's actually so, quite a good introduction. Sorry, just just Stromberg's introduction is that he's he's in this sort of palatial house with all these tapestries and paintings and he's got this big banquet table. And the reveal is he's, he's actually in such sort of giant submarine. Hmm. Um, I don't understand why he kept all the crews of the submarines alive. I'm glad he did, because that makes for a good finale, and I don't like people to be killed. But yeah, that makes no sense at all. It makes for an almost identical finale to You Only Live Twice. Yes. Um, it's just a yeah, bloody yeah. great shootout for no it, readily it, apparent reason. That was a shootout in a volcano. This is a shootout in an oil tanker. But, but it is exactly that. But also, Stromberg, it's an odd guy. Um, what, he, what do you think of his very, performance? Ter terrible. It's just so boring. But at the very beginning... Um, and this is the the sequence with Cyril Schatz. Forgive me, Matt. I've got mixed up. The bad guy's name is Stromberg, and it's played by Kurt Jurgens. Is that right? Kurt Jurgens. Yeah. yeah. Is Kurt Jurgens generally not great, or is he just not great in this? Um. I mean, I he wouldn't have been my choice for a Bond villain, but you'd think you'd give something to it. It's a very he, it's underwritten. Very, well, it's it's a dull bad guy, dull performance. It's just not good. He does have a good line: "Observe, Mister Bond, the instruments of Armageddon." Yeah, it's it's that thing of um, casting someone and not really knowing what to do with them and just having twirly moustache villains. They did the same with Jonathan Price in Tomorrow Never Dies. They did the same with Drax in uh, Moonraker. They just think that you can call someone a villain and give them a big submarine or a mountain lair or whatever, and that's <laughs> enough. And it's not. Um, Stromberg doesn't even have a white cat. Well, no, and he's also a bit thick. Um at the beginning, he's got two guys that have done some research for him, and he's paying them £10 million each. Yeah, and then he kills them. Yeah, and then he says to his secretary, cancel the transfer. Why make the transfer in the first place? Well, why... He knew he was going to kill them. Why kill them? It's just, I don't know. Well, it's a laugh. I mean, that's just supposed to make him look evil, isn't it? But, I mean, I just... But I think we've established that this is not a good film. You and cited the sequence when you're talking about how Helen Mirren could have brought the role of Major Anya to life. Yes. The scene where she discovers that it was Bond who killed her boyfriend. Now, I've yeah. written that the, uh, the story kicks in at the point the Major says she'll kill him. So that, at that point, I feel that I suddenly thought, OK, the movie's got started now and good things happen. Like, so what happens is... Bond is on the submarine uh, with, in full uniform with, uh, with Barbara Bach, Anya, in full u uniform too. There's a good gag in there about her using the shower in the, in the captain's quarters on the submarine. I thought, it, I like that. Well, it's just an excuse to show her slightly naked though, isn't it? Well, th through a steam, steamy shower room door, you know, that, that extended nudity. But she looks great in uniform. He looks great in uniform. And the submarine gets captured by Stromberg, who has this oil tanker which opens up at the front and sucks in the, the uh, submarine. And once you're inside, I think that it's a fantastic Ken Adams set. I really loved it. 
I've actually written down it's over-designed. It looks like someone trying to be <laughs> Ken Adam. You're so... Well, in this movie, it was such a relief to finally have something to praise, but you're so hard to please. Well, Ken Adams designed some fantastic sets for Bond, but I don't think this is one of them. Um, I do. It's I think too little, too late oil, by this oil stage. The oil tanker subpen is great, uh, but you're right, it is too little, too late. And I'm not overly happy with how bloodthirsty Bond is at the end of the film. Uh, he uses five bullets on Stromberg to kill him. And this is a guy who himself poses no threat to anyone. He's not a strong person. He's never used a gun. He's never done anything himself. He's always got henchmen to do it. So for Bond to be that violent towards him Matt, seems... I think the problem is that he's not much of a villain. If he'd been a really great, no. hideous villain, you wouldn't have minded that. No, absolutely. And this is, um, again, this is what Roger Moore was fighting for. And I think it's in For Your Eyes Only. There's a scene where he has a fight with a henchman on a roof and he's holding the henchman by his tie. And the henchman says, well, what are you going to do, kill me? And Roger Moore was not happy that he lets the tie go and lets the guy... No, it's the pin. It's the guy in the car, actually. It is for your eyes only. Um, he throws him his badge and the guy's car tips over and flies down the mountain. Roger Moore wasn't happy about doing that. He said, I don't see why Bond would do Pointless this. Pointless killing. Yeah. yeah. Um, and this, again, feels like pointless killing because Stromberg doesn't really pose any threat physically. So he could just be arrested. Yeah, look, I'm not going to defend Stromberg. Uh, I did want to cite a good piece of dialogue. When that sub I mentioned with Bond and Bark on it gets uh, kidnapped, uh, subnapped, taken into the uh, the oil tanker, and the bad guys attach the sort of hose to it, and they say, either come out or fill it with cyanide gas. The captain of the sub says to his men, proceed quietly out of the casing. The casing. Somebody has actually done some research about submarines. I just love that. Good line of dialogue. <laughs> One of the few highlights of this film. But Matt was talking earlier about keeping all the submarine crews alive. So what happens is eventually Bond unleashes the trapped submariners, the Russians and the Americans, and there's a big gun battle, which I liked. It was, you know, and it is basically the volcano shootout from You Only Live Twice. But, I, you know, I was looking for any little crumbs of, of uh, satisfaction in this movie, and that was one of them. It's so difficult to write a satisfying ending in any action film along these lines because whatever you write isn't going to come close to the set pieces you've had elsewhere. And if you go big, like you do with this, it's just guys shooting at each other. And for the most part, it's extras in different uniforms, faceless people. You don't really have much involvement in it. But if you go the opposite way, like um, Man with a Golden Gun, and you've got two guys stalking each other around uh, a maze, you know full well Bond's the one that's going to survive, so it's a complete waste of everyone's time. Because the suspense element doesn't exist. There is no suspense. Ah, but so, I, actually, I did write here toward the, the end when, all, when they're sort of mucking around with bombs and trying to... Oh, yeah, what it is is it's a countdown to Armageddon, right? I've written... Besides Moore looks good, give him his due, there's some effective suspense at the end. So I, did, I, I thought that it did get quite suspenseful when we were trying to stop the subs nuking the world. Another thing that occurs to me is that there is there's something about the Bond films which is quite fetishistic towards sharks. Yeah, well, of course, Stromberg's got a bloody shark pool, you know, that he feeds people in his giant sub. If you go up, come up in the lift, be careful, which Roger Moore is, because he's going to dump you in his shark pool. Yeah, uh, a lot of um, a lot of this film ended up in Austin Powers, and I think that's possibly worked against it over the years. No, listen, nothing could have saved this film, even if it hadn't ended up in Austin <laughs> Powers. But what happens is 
Jaws gets dumped in the shark pool and he starts biting the shark. And you know what? You can guess what that reminded me of. Well, yeah, exactly. Forty. And it's roughly the same time. Yeah. So tell, tell folks what that means. It's in uh, Lucio Forti's Zombie. Uh, there's a sequence in that where a zombie has a, a basically a punch up with a shark underwater. Underwater. Uh, zombie is also known as zombie flesh eaters. It's worth knowing that. Yes. Yeah, I always know. Yeah, so that really came to mind in this. So I wonder if that was if there was any you know connection between the two. Who cares? I can't imagine they watch anyone else's films. I think they just sit and clap. At I their don't. Own. Why should they watch their own? So this wasn't a great movie, <laughs> but and it does have one of the. It, and we should always mention the really tasteless sex references because you know you know christmas only comes once a year blah 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 in this one it's at the very beginning this they're talking about bond they say tell him to pull out immediately and of course they cut to him shagging this bird <laughs> i know it's just it's just it's invidious and do you know that that actress her credit is the end is i think girl in log cabin <laughs> <laughs> could have been worse could have been worse well, there is a worse one, isn't there? I think somewhere there's a lady whose only uh, credit on IMDb is a woman who pisses herself or something along those lines. Not in a Bond film. No, I think it's in Threads, actually. Oh, OK. Yeah. <laughs> well, so, that's yeah. a high-tone note to end this on. Are, are, we, are we wrapping this up? <laughs> I think we are. It's, it's surprising. that it's. I, I thought we would clash more on this one, but uh, there's You've there's really got a low opinion of me. Yeah. <laughs> why did you think I can see why you think I'd like Barbara Bach because she is very striking but why would you think I'd like the movie generally because I suspect this would have been one that you could easily have seen at the cinema and would have had good memories of at the time just because anything you see when you're younger if you see it at the cinema you sometimes not you particularly but anyone you, you connect with it more when you watch it later on and less critically but just because you've got those happy moments like Superman 3 I adore because I saw it at the, at the cinema but I know that everyone else hates it. I think that I, I used to religiously go to Bond films when I was a kid and also more recently. But while I was sort of at university, that sort of age, I stopped going. And I think the last one I saw on cinematic release might prove to be Live and Let Die. Because I, I was I never liked the Roger Moore Bond, so I don't think I ever saw this before. But I'm, I wouldn't swear to it, but it left no memories. So look, it's got a great Bond song. It's got a good title sequence. Barbara Bach looks great, but has nothing to do, although at least her character is interesting. She's a, a proactive Russian spy. She does fight back. That gets some points to that. I loved the sub-pen set. I liked the big shootout at the end. Moore looks pretty good. I'm rapidly running out of nice things to say about this yeah. it's a, it's a, It's a dud. <laughs> it's a dud. It's not great. Next one will be better. Okay, do you want to talk about what we should do next? Uh, next, uh, next, next Bond? I, we did mention From Russia With Love. Can do. I have actually already done... Uh, have we done Living Daylights yet? No, so should we do that? Because you've done it. Yeah, let's do Living Daylights, yeah. Um, and then we'll... Because then we're covering a different bond as we go. No, it's good, it's good to vary. It's as long as it doesn't involve Roger Moore and flares taking off, taking off his flares. God forbid. Uh, well, we, we'll have to do uh, Live and Let Die and Man with a Golden Gun at some point, but we'll see what happens nearer the time. Okay. Cool. James Bond Next will return, time. and unfortunately fucking Jaws will return at least once. This has been a podcast by my friend Matt West and myself, Andrew Cartmel. But very importantly, the music, the fabulous music you heard at the beginning and that you're listening to now is by Joe Kramer. Thank you very much, Joe. Mr. Fackish asked me to entertain you while you are waiting. Oh, really? <laughs>